Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Olivia Porter, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Liz Harris, the editor of Buddhism in Five Minutes, which was published in 2021 by Equinox Publishing. Liz is an honorary senior research fellow at the Edward Cadbury Center for the Public Understanding of Religion at the University of Birmingham. And Liz is also the current president of the UK Association for Buddhist Studies. Liz's research focuses on Buddhist studies and interreligious studies, and she's particularly interested in the texts of Theravada Buddhism and how they relate to contemporary issues such as Buddhism and women, Buddhism and conflict, and the encounter between Buddhism and the West. Buddhism in Five Minutes offers new answers to over 70 questions that people curious about Buddhism might ask. Answered by specialists, the questions cover the Buddha, what the Buddha taught, Buddhist monasticism, the role of lay people, the historical development of Buddhism, Buddhist art, and beyond. Buddhism in Five Minutes is written in an accessible, non-specialist language, and each chapter takes around five minutes to read. It's an invaluable resource to those who are new to Buddhism and Buddhist studies, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this edited volume with Liz today. Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia. Um, I was wondering if we could kick off the podcast with a general question, um, which is, what brought you to Buddhist studies? Well, I came to Buddhist studies later than some scholars. Um, My first degree was in English with philosophy and uh, my first job was teaching English in Jamaica and then I came back and taught English in some London schools. Um, I first encountered Buddhism on a visit to Sri Lanka in my early 30s and I realised that there was some kind of unfinished business between me and, and Buddhism and that I really needed to learn more about it. So eventually that led me to going to Sri Lanka um, to study Buddhism. And I stayed much longer than I thought I would. Um, And I eventually did a doctorate there through a Sri Lankan university. So that visit to Sri Lanka kind of made me into an academic. And I came back and for the rest of my working career, I've worked in different universities, but also in practical interreligious relations, promoting good interreligious relations. So, so briefly, that's how I um, entered Buddhist studies. Super interesting. Thank you. Um, and then I guess more specifically to Buddhism in Five Minutes, what brought you to editing this volume? Well, it was really through the UK Association for Buddhist Studies, which I'm going to call UCAPS from now on. Um, they um, have a special relationship with Equinox in that Equinox publishes the journal of UCAPS, Buddhist Studies Review. And one of the, meet- of the meetings between representatives from UCABS and Equinox, um, they were asked whether the association would take on the challenge of doing a book on Buddhism in the five-minute series that Equinox already had up and going. And there's, you know, five minutes, linguistics in five minutes, I think, religion in five minutes, um, that are already published. And... Um, members of UCAMS there said, okay, we will. And then they kind of asked themselves, well, who could edit it? And they came up with my name, um, probably because I'd, I'd recently retired. And, um, and I said, yes. So really, I was asked by the UK Association um, for Buddhist Studies or UCAMS, and I've been helped throughout by um, members of their management committee. And I've seen myself as almost doing it on behalf of the association. Great. Um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the kind of structure of the book, because it is an edited volume and there are lots of entries. Um, 
And I think later on, maybe I'll ask you a question about the logistics of that, you know, how to edit a volume like that. Um, but uh, just for the initial kind of uh, startup. So the the book is split into 10 parts and it's 75 different questions. Um, oh, no, actually, sorry, 11 categories. Um, how did you decide on the categories? Really, it was a joint effort by the management committee of the UK Association for Buddhist Studies or UCABS. Um, and we wanted to have a book that covered the whole kind of breadth and height of, of Buddhism, um, because Buddhism is not just about the Buddha. It's not just about what the Buddha taught. It's about art. It's about ethics. About It's about how Buddhists live their religion now. It's how how Buddhists have related politically to different situations. We wanted to capture the kind of breadth of Buddhism as a living tradition. And um, another member of the committee of UCAMS, Peter Harvey, uh, drew together an initial list of questions. And then, um, you know, other members of the committee and me, others, we suggested more questions. And so it kind of developed organically through, through dialogue and and through discussion. So, um, yes, the 11 categories begin with Buddhism as a religion and the Buddha, but ends with Buddhism and contemporary issues, as you said at the beginning, and, and emergent Buddhism. Um, so, yes, I suppose the, the categories arose because we wanted to be comprehensive. And we wanted to kind of catch the questions that people are asking in wider society, particularly those who don't know much about Buddhism. And is there a particular way that the reader should approach the book? You know, should they read it from front to back or can they dip in and out of it? Well, dip in and out, I think. I mean, I wrote the introduction and I say in the introduction that there's no need to begin at the beginning and then slog your way through right to the end and think that you've got to, um, you know, read every chapter, every answer to every question, even if the questions don't interest you at all. No. Um, I suggest another way, and you could start with, um, you know, one of the questions that leap out to you is perhaps interesting. And then um, when you've read that one, um, you'll realise that at the end of each chapter, there's a section called further reading. And that begins with other chapters in the book that link to the question that you've just read. So if it's a question on the Buddha, for instance, and what do we what do we know about what the Buddha taught? There are questions about, well, how, how do people pay devotion to the Buddha? Um, and um, other questions on the Buddha. So there are little networks of questions that you could read um, around the question you've first chosen. Um, and then you might just pick another question and go to another little network of questions. Um, so it it's really, it really opens up to different ways of of reading. Um, and I think that's a, a particularly good point about the book. You don't have to start at the beginning and just go to the end. Um, start with your interests and then let the interests kind of gradually expand. Definitely. That's what um, I also thought when I was looking at the book. I thought it would be great for undergraduate students. You know, if they go to a lecture and they learn something about, I don't know, Buddhist morality they can go to Buddhism in five minutes find that section and then from there go on to different sections um, which is really good and I like how there's um, the sources used in the footnotes but then also suggestions for further readings outside of the book. Yes I think that's also a strength of the book so it's continually 
yes, pointing people outwards as well as kind of inwards to other parts of the book that you could that you could read. Yes. Um, so I mentioned I thought that this book would be great for undergraduate students, but who else is the intended audience? Who would benefit from reading Buddhism in five minutes? I think anyone who um, has an interest in Buddhism. And I think Buddhism is out there in popular culture, whether you go to a garden centre and you buy a Buddha image for your for your garden or you go to the well-being um, part of a bookshop, you know, there are books on Buddhism or you hear about certain celebrities who have, have embraced Buddhism or, or you know that mindfulness has something to do with Buddhism. Um, and um, so... Yes, anyone who has an interest in in in, in Buddhism um, as a kind of living religion in the contemporary world. So, you know, the general reader. It's not it's certainly not written for um, high high academics in universities or something. But as you say, it can be it would be very helpful um, to undergraduates because each chapter has been written by a specialist. That's the whole point of the, the five-minute series, that um, the questions are answered accessibly, but by people who know what they're talking about, um, who are academics or, or practitioners with kind of um, a deep knowledge of their tradition. So, um, yes, it's for people who want to learn, know more about Buddhism from people who know what they're talking about, not just those in academia. And why do you think it's important for non-Buddhists or people who don't know much about Buddhism to know something about Buddhism? Well, I think that's a very, very good question. And, and perhaps I'm biased um, because I spent much of my life teaching Buddhism and trying to um, convey it in a way that um, makes my students kind of excited about Buddhism as, as having something to say to the contemporary world. I mean, Buddhism has quite a radical message concerning um, what goes wrong with societies. And there is competition, greed, consumerism, hatred, and so on. It, it links into some of the, the real issues that we're facing. And Buddhists, Buddhists, of course, are engaging with them, whether it's ecological issues or um, issues of waste and consumerism or, or issues of war and peace. So Buddhism has, I think, something to offer societies um, and, and something can appeal to people, even, even if they're not Buddhists. I would say, um, yeah, but certainly um, non-Buddhists can gain from this book. I mean, it's not a book that's trying to convert anyone to Buddhism. It's a book that's, that's trying to give information about what is important to Buddhists and how Buddhists um, live in the contemporary world and, and how Buddhism can offer perhaps some solutions to, to problems in society. Definitely. Um, yeah, I really do agree with that. Um, I wanted to ask you, of all of the chapters, um, did you have any particular favourites? Well, the book has over 30 specialist contributors and they were all great people to work with. And I wouldn't want to privilege any one of them by saying, right, that is my favourite answer or something like that. But so I thought I'd 
um, say something about the questions. Some of the most interesting questions for me are those that tackle stereotypes that people have of Buddhism. Um, that, um, you know, is Buddhism a religion? Uh, some people would say that oh, Buddhism is, is just a philosophy. It's just a kind of high philosophy. It's not a religion um, in the same way as Christianity or Islam um, are religions. That answer kind of argues that Buddhism has all, all the elements of a religion in terms of its institutions, its texts, its practices, its devotion, its ethics. It's not just a philosophy. And so, um, yes, then there are the questions, why do Buddhists meditate? And the, quest, and the answer explains it's not just to gain peace of mind. Um, sometimes Buddhist meditation in the contemporary world is just presented as a way to gain, um, to gain peace. But it also involves you know, gaining insight. Yes, it involves gaining calm and tranquility, but also insight into your own mind and insight into the nature of reality. So um, then does Buddhism support gender equality? It's another interesting question. Um, because sometimes all religions are just, you know, hit as patriarchal and um, without gender equality. And certainly, um, in, in the history of Buddhism, Buddhism has fallen into patriarchal patterns, but that's not the whole story. There's some very strong elements in Buddhism that concern equality, gender equality. So that chapter kind of goes into that. Um, is tantric Buddhism just about sex? Um, there's another question that's there. And tantric Buddhism is usually linked with Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism. And again, there are stereotypes about um, this attitude to sex and the, some of the iconography and everything. Um, and so we answer that in as balanced as a way as we can. Um, are Buddhist pacifists? Another interesting question. So again, Buddhism is um, often ideally seen as a pacifist religion. And indeed, um, it is, ideally. But on the ground, Buddhists are people. And people in societies often get tied up in conflict. So in certain countries with where there's a majority Buddhist population, there has been, there have been wars, um, and Buddhists have not always been pacifist. And so that question, you know, delves into that. Um, are human rights compatible with Buddhism? Um, another interesting question, because some, some might say, well, Buddhists speak about responsibilities rather than rights. But but the answer, again, tries to, to delve more deeply into that. Um, so, yes, yeah, some of the questions that um, tackle stereotypes that are out there about Buddhism, I think, are, 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 are some of the most interesting. Yeah, they definitely stood out um, to me as well. And also the chapters that were about kind of um, things that were overlooked in Buddhism. So one of the chapters that really stood out to me was, I think it's chapter 12. And the question is, who is the fat Buddha figure? Because, um, you know, the fat Buddha figure is something that, you know, you see all the time in, you know, Chinese restaurants and shops, different places. Um, and I've certainly seen the Fat Buddha many times, but I I never actually thought about who the Fat Buddha was. Um, so it was really interesting to read uh, that kind of summary about how a historical figure basically got integrated into the canon. And now we see that image everywhere. Um, so yeah, that really stood out to me. 
Um, I thought maybe now we could turn to some of the chapters that you wrote, um, so we could talk about those in a bit more detail. Um, the first is chapter 40, um, which is answering the question, what is Hinayana? So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Hinayana. Okay. Um, well, Hinayana literally means lesser or lower vehicle or way or path. And it was first used in Buddhism when a new form of Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, was breaking away from what we would call early Buddhism, the Buddhism that came from the historical Buddha. And they used it to denote what they broke away from. In other words, they said, um, okay, early Buddhism has got a couple of things wrong. We have now got um, greater insight um, and some new texts and this kind of thing, a new vision. And we're going to call the earlier forms of Buddhism the lesser vehicle. Um, now, the term is not really used by scholars now, um, but it's sometimes used by practitioners and, and others um, to denote several things. And the usage that is most controversial is when it's used to denote what is now known as Theravada Buddhism, which is the Buddhism that you um, find in Thailand, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, sometimes called Southern Buddhism as well. Um, and some people label Theravada Buddhism Hinayana because it, has, it claims to have grown from the teachings of the historical Buddha with his century BCE. But um, that's a very hurtful designation um, and is almost historically wrong because contemporary Theravada Buddhism cannot be equated with the early Buddhism that the Mahayana Buddhists labelled the lesser vehicle. Um, and so um, that's why scholars and practitioners no longer use it. And Theravada Buddhists are still hurt to hear um, Mahayana Buddhists calling their form of Buddhism the lesser vehicle. Now, strictly internally within some forms of Mahayana Buddhism, Hinayana is used to denote the kind of first stages of the path the absolutely essential stages of the path, which are then needed for them, for people to move onwards, for practitioners to move onwards. But that, again, shouldn't be equated with contemporary Theravada Buddhism, cannot be equated with it. So my answer was trying to tease out these different meanings and, again, to, to challenge anyone who would say, well, of course, Theravada is Hinayana, the lesser vehicle. No, it's not. It's, it's a much richer and a different um, a school of Buddhism with absolute kind of integrity and completeness. It's very interesting. Um, I want to ask you a more specific question about um, the offence that the term might cause. You know, who you uh, mentioned that practitioners don't really use the term anymore and um, mm. scholars don't really use the term anymore. So who who is it that would be offended by such a term or the usage of such a term? You know, is it um, just lay Buddhists in a specific um, cultural environment or who finds it offensive? Well, Theravada Buddhists in countries like Sri Lanka, Thailand, Myanmar, and so on, if so on, if they hear um, Mahayana Buddhists kind of very loosely and carelessly use, using the term for Theravada Buddhism. And I must say, in my own experience, going going back many decades, um, when I was living in Sri Lanka, I went to a, um, 
a kind of conference which drew together Mahayana and Theravada women. And I was surprised at some of the, the views towards Theravada by Mahayana women. Now, I think we've moved on from that point. Certainly, women across the traditions have certainly moved on. Um, at that point, there was still quite a lot of, you know, I think, misunderstanding. Um, people within Mahayana traditions not really knowing enough about Theravada Buddhism and the Theravada tradition. It's really interesting. Um, it's interesting how, you know, over the years it's changed and the usage has changed and people um, stopped using the term, um, definitely in scholarship anyway. Um, maybe we can move to the other chapter, the next chapter that you wrote, um, which is chapter 54. And the question is, how do Buddhist views uh, how do Buddhists view other religious traditions and what kind of interreligious encounters are Buddhists involved in now? So in this chapter, you talk about the spread of Buddhism um, and how it interacted with other religions, uh, for example, um, Christianity in China and Sri Lanka. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about these interactions, these interreligious reactions? That's a very broad subject, I know. Um, broad subject, <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. But, um, yes, I make the point that... Um, there's a general principle that I found in Buddhist traditions that when um, people within other religious traditions are courteous and respectful towards Buddhism, then Buddhists seek coexistence, respectful coexistence, and sometimes perhaps debates where um, you know, interesting religious questions are discussed. That can certainly come into respectful coexistence. But when a threat is seen, then Buddhists can be can rise to defensive strategies in order to defend their tradition. And I used the illustration of Sri Lanka because that is a country I've done quite a lot of research on, particularly on the encounter between Buddhists and um, British Christians during the 19th century and the early 20th century. And um, from the archive records we've got, um, Buddhists, when the British first came, although they'd had experience of other Christians, um, and sometimes Christians who were violent towards Buddhist places of worship, um, they caught, they sought a kind of practical coexistence that would allow them to survive under imperialism, um, and were respectful towards those, well, towards Christians. But then um, the British colonial period was marked by independent missionary societies in Britain, sending independent missionaries to places like Sri Lanka um, to convert Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims there. And it was when Buddhists realized the extent of the contempt that some of these missionaries had towards Buddhism, that they then adopted defensive methods. And the first method was, um, one method was to write very scholarly responses to Christian accusations against Buddhism, which they wrote on Ola leaves and took from village to village. Um, but then when they gained printing presses, you got a much more polemic kind of atmosphere. And um, you had Christian, Christian pamphlets and, and booklets and Buddhist pamphlets and booklets um, being exchanged and um, being very polemic towards each other. Um, as... Christians um, accuse Buddhists of having a nihilistic religion, a pessimistic religion, an ethically impotent religion. So the Buddhists accuse Christians of exactly the same things, of 
being irrational, pessimistic, and again, ethically impotent and that kind of thing. So you saw a rise of defensiveness and a rise of mistrust that actually goes right into the present. I mean, there's still there's still some Christian Buddhist mistrust in um, in Sri Lanka, and there have been attacks on places of worship. There have also been many instances of cooperation and understanding and dialogue, as well as mistrust. But there's still a kind of residual um, level at which some Buddhists kind of always think, "Well, what, what are the Christians trying to do here?" Um, and um, and also there's the question of Buddhism and Islam because. Um, more recently, media attention has been focused on the Rohingya in, in Myanmar. And also in Sri Lanka, Muslims have been targeted by um, what I would call Buddhist nationalists. And I think these attacks can also be traced to some parts of colonialism. They absolutely can't be defended, of course. The violence that has happened um, towards the Rohingya and um, and towards Muslims in Sri Lanka, and Buddhists have been involved. But I think we can try and tease out the causes. Um, and, would, and I would say that certainly not all Buddhists in either country are anti-Muslim. Um, some have definitely created dialogue opportunities and encounter opportunities for Buddhists and Muslims to come more closely together. But when you get some str strands of Buddhist nationalism, and this is linked with politics and identity. And um, it can lead to actions that many Buddhists would condemn. So do you make a distinction between Buddhist nationalists and Buddhists? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question. Um, <laughs> um, no, because I wouldn't. Because... Um, the kind of nationalism that has grown up within the politics of Myanmar and Sri Lanka is, you know, is part of Buddhism in that country, and and is part of a debate, and is part of the conversations that happen internally in any religion. Um, I think all religions have a kind of internal debate between different sections, different perspectives. And this is no less true of, of Buddhism. Um, during the ethnic war in Sri Lanka, and I was living in Sri Lanka at the time, um, I listened to many different Buddhist views. Um, the Buddhists who were convinced that a military solution to the ethnic war was not the way, and you had to go towards dialogue and negotiations and um, a peaceful settlement, whereas others that who are more nationalistic, saying, no, the threat we face is so severe that we have to support the military in defeating um, the group they saw as um, terrorists, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam. So um, I place Buddhist nationalism within um, the debate that is happening within Buddhist societies. Part of Buddhism, but not the whole of Buddhism, never the whole. Yeah, um, conflict in Buddhist societies is another theme that is touched on in Buddhism in Five Minutes. And I think that's really good because, you know, from dipping in and out of the book, you can, especially if you're new to Buddhism, you can come to realise, you know, some of the misconceptions that we might have about Buddhism um, 
should be challenged. You know, there is the perception that Buddhist Buddhism is a non-violent uh, religion and uh, everything's peaceful and um that that isn't the case in contemporary society and in history you know buddhists are normal people too um but that's like a great virtue of uh, the volume is that you can you can learn more about these themes um in a kind of a holistic way you know there's different it touches on different uh, elements of society and how it also relates to um vinaya to uh, the pali canon all sorts yes we don't try to simplify things we want we try to i've tried all the contributors have tried to make their writing accessible, but they're all, they also recognise complexity and the complexity of any religion as it's lived in the world. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of complexity, I've got a question for you about the complexity of editing a volume with so many different entries. <laughs> mm, it took a long time. I will say it took, um, it took longer than I thought it would. And I think it took longer than the, the committee of the UK Association for Buddhist Studies thought it would. Um, one challenge was consistency, keeping a kind of consistent level. So I had to tell some contributors, please, your, your chapter is a little too complicated. Please simplify it. Um, and don't use so many technical terms. We were told by Equinox um not to include loads and loads of technical terms um we have a whole course included some because you can't possibly explain what the buddha taught without reference to some pali and sanskrit terms and this kind of thing explaining their meaning but to create a kind of consistency of level was a challenge um and it, it did lead to quite a lot of you know toing and froing of emails with with contributors and also um helping other contributors to write at um, yes, a significantly complex level as well, um, making sure all technical terms were accurate. Um, I mean, I'm pretty okay with Pali and Sanskrit terms, but some people used um, Chinese and Japanese terms. And so in the end, the book, um, the draft, was read by several people within UCAPS to make sure all the terms were correct. And um, again, that took quite a long time. So somebody else in the UCAPS committee went right through to see that all the Japanese and Chinese terms were consistent and, and accurate and so on. So um, yes, that, that was a challenge, but um, I'm pleased with the result. I think we, we didn't skimp on on the oversight and on on getting different people to read the text and so on. Definitely, I mean, there's such a broad array of different subjects um, that's included in the book. Um, there are a lot of subjects, but I was wondering, were there any questions that didn't make the cut, or you wish that you could have covered? Oh, yes, there were, and I'm trying to think of them. Yes, there were. Um, yeah, some questions we did cut out. Um, we did have a bit of a tussle with the word limit and Equinox were um, very generous with us because we did go over the word limit that we originally given. And so, yes, a couple of questions did have to go. Um, and, um, and then, but then others had to be put in because we felt they were absolutely essential, such as... Um, Buddhism and, and racism. Now, what 
the exact term, um, the exact the exact way we did it. Um, but yes, the um, what does Buddhism have to say about race? That was not there to begin with, and we felt with you know Black Lives Matter and so on that had to be there. So again, in the whole process of producing it, there was some questions that went, others that were brought in. Well, it's so interesting to hear about the kind of uh, production process and, you know, how ideas can flow and things come in and things go out. Um, yeah, it's definitely a richer volume for those editions, for sure. Um, and then I think we can um, end on a final question, which is what projects are you working on next? OK, well, I'm involved with the project has already lasted several years. And it's again, it's a two volume book that's going to be published by Equinox um, that I'm co-writing with a scholar in, in the, the US called John Crow. And it's a biography. Well, it's the first volume is a biography of one, one of the first British people to become ordained as a Buddhist monk in Myanmar in 1902. At least the novice ordination was 1901, then 1902, the higher ordination and um, we've both, writ we've both um, written on this person before. His name, his lay name was Alan Bennett and his monastic name, Ananda Metea. And But we're now writing a much more comprehensive biography of his journey through, um, through esotericism, occultism, um, Buddhism. Um, and the second volume is going to be a kind of annotated collection of his writings because he was a prolific writer and a very good writer so that's what I'm working on at the moment and it it touches on the um the transmission of Buddhism in the west because one of the main priorities of Ananda Metea was um to bring Buddhism to the west and to convince westerners that Buddhism held some of the answers to the questions he saw in um, Western society, particularly individualism and consumerism. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment, hoping to submit this year sometime. That sounds really exciting. I'll be looking forward to that coming out to read more about um, Alan Bennett. Um, do you have any kind of concluding remarks about five, uh, Buddhism in five minutes? I don't, I don't think so. I've said, I think, all I can say about it. Um, I mean, it was a, a tremendous privilege to work with all the, the contributors, I must say this, although it took longer than I thought it would and perhaps threw up more issues than I thought it would in terms of consistency and, and, and getting all the questions right. But it was a tremendous privilege to work with such a fantastic group of contributors, um, you know, to produce, to produce what we have. And I would want to thank all the contributors, um, yeah, for their cooperation. <laughs> um, that's great. Well, it's been great to hear about Buddhism in Five Minutes and talk a little bit about the chapters and the structure and what the process was like um, editing the volume. Um, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you. It's been a, it's been an enjoyable experience. <laughs>